Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I should say, I guess, welcome back. We're back after a a hiatus of sorts. So welcome back to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org for more information and to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you are tweeting, follow us at Just Schools and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS or Communities for Just Schools. Also find us on Facebook or Instagram. On Schoolhouse Today, we are talking with Dr. Noliwe Rooks. Dr. Rooks is a professor at Cornell University where she is the Director of American Studies. Today, we are going to talk about her seminal work, Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. Dr. Rooks, thank you so much for being on Schoolhouse today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This book is so important. It is devastating and uplifting all at once. I absolutely love it. I have been doing this work as as a civil rights attorney for many years in education and justice, and I learned a lot from your writing. This book, listeners, is a necessity. You must read it if you have not. You know, all over the United States, we are seeing a heightened interest in the educational well-being of black and brown children and children living in poverty. That heightened interest is well-funded and almost completely disconnected from the communities it purports to serve. And you, Dr. Rooks, begin your book with an anecdote about a student at Princeton where you teach or used to teach. And this was when you were a professor there, but also, I should add, you were the associate director of African-American studies there. This student comes into your office and she voices her concern for students who are poor. And this is what she calls the civil rights issue of our time, ensuring that students living in poverty have access to a quality education And she thinks the fix is for students like her, wealthy and white, to do their duty to equalize educational opportunity for students whom the public school system was failing. You open your book there, and it is a metaphor for a larger revelation in your research, something that you call segronomics. Will you tell us, please, what is segronomics and what does that mean? I think that that conversation with that one student, the ways that she was intent on making like a career for herself, all of a sudden focusing on the education, the undereducation of black children, brown children, poor children in urban communities. And she had big dreams about, you know, like public policy, this and start organizations. And, and so much of it had to do with her and with college students and how easy they seemed to think it would be to use this issue of education, undereducation of black and brown poor kids to launch themselves into a variety of different careers, venture capitalism, you know, there's mm-hmm. edu business, like there's this whole thing. So there was a whole narrative about profiting from civil rights 
in ways that I, I mean, I did think that she was right, that education, though it's not in the Constitution, is a right. I think that we all believe that there should be a right to education. And certainly with public education, you know, tax dollars are spent on it. So that gives a kind of communal or public relationship to it. But she was talking about ways that college students could extract personal profit, personal standing from this. And I started the book and I'm sort of like, okay, I'm going to try to figure out where does this start? Like I saw it everywhere at the time at Princeton with students and businesses and what, but you know, it was sort of like, let me figure out where this started. This thinking that the undereducation of black kids, poor kids is a profit center. And I backed all the way up to post reconstruction to the beginning of public education, state or tax funded compulsory education starts in Reconstruction, the period following the Civil War. And what I learned as I worked my way back forward is the things that I was noting, the things that I I was, you know, perplexed by, like why all of a sudden very wealthy, highly educated, only ever grew up around white people, white girl, which is what she told me she was, why all of a sudden has this become your cause? Yeah. And what I found is there's always in the history of public education in the United States, at least, always been this relationship between business, philanthropy, and a profit to be made by undereducating black children or poor kids. There's always been businesses as well as state governments, (laughs) as well as communities that have found ways for that undereducation to profit them, to profit other people. And so what I ended up calling that whole process is segronomics and it's business practices. I mean, I'm talking about it in relation to education in this book, but I've heard from people who do housing and other kinds of issues that it's useful for them as well to Mm -hmm. think about these business models that come up that don't work, like they could not exist in the absence of high levels of racial and economic segregation. You have to have high levels of racial and economic segregation in order for the business model to work. And so that's what I termed segronomics in relation to these moments where we see these relationships between philanthropists, business, and black people and black communities. It's frightening. It is stark. The way that you unravel it in this book it makes common sense. You know, I think that there really is the corporate interest in the racial and economic segregation of the country is currently palpable. But as you mentioned, that interest has a history. And I I just want to read a quote from your book, Cutting School. And that quote starts, schools for black children were a consistent target of economic and social disinvestment and white Southern legislatures employed a variety of means to ensure that the fewest possible black children had as little access to schools and education dollars as they could legally manage. Will you share with us a little of that history, Dr. Rooks, of segronomics? What are its origins, and and how does it have such staying power? Some of the earliest examples that I focus on are right during that period of Reconstruction. So because Reconstruction is undertaught, I just want to say really quickly, it's a 12, 13-year period. Following the end of the Civil War um, in 1865, 
One of the things that comes out of that during a Reconstruction era, this period where the federal government has to figure out, well, how are we going to ensure that these folks we have just fought this war to free mm-hmm. are able to actually use their rights, the right of freedom, the right to vote, the right of citizenship, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, you know, in the face of these these people who we fought to death, like we fought <laughs> yeah. them to surrender, but they haven't changed their views, like they mm-hmm. lost because we out fought them. But, you know, they still think the same thing. So what are we going to do to make sure that they're safe and that they get to actually act like citizens? So one thing is, of course, they send in troops. There's federal troops there, but they also make sure that black people can vote and they make sure that there is public education. And they knew, you know, at the time, poor white people in the South were not getting educated. The planters' children, children of slave owners and plantation owners, You know, they were educated often going to boarding schools or, you know, out of state, but just regular white people were not. So it was like, okay, look, we are going to make it palatable to white people for us to send federal funds to educate, you know, black folks because we're going to also educate white people. So this is the first period where uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones just recently wrote something about this in the New York Times, and she's sort of like, but this was the first moment of educational democracy that we see, and it's because black people, Mm -hmm. you know, are leading the way. White people just so happen to get education. Well, as soon as that whole, you know, that just didn't last very long, and white supremacists being white supremacists, like, quite frankly, it didn't take that long for the southern plantation class, the very wealthy, the owners, the people who had formerly owned, people who are now sitting in Congress or in state government, they rose back up fairly quickly. And of course, one of the first things that they said is, we need you to get rid of these troops. You know, like these troops are the only thing keeping us from just wreaking havoc. So get rid of them. Along with them getting rid of the troops, and there's a whole compromise, like I'm not trying to have a straight history lesson. There's a whole way that yeah. we got rid of the troops. But as soon as they're gone, the 13 slaveholding states in the South, for all 13 states, the quickness with which they got rid of the ability for black people to vote, the quickness with which they put up all kinds of barriers to make that impossible or just lynch people, you know, or just beat them, if not actual barriers, and dismantled access for black people to have education. So one of the first things that I, I talk about as segronomics is following the war um, and following Reconstruction, the former governments in the former slaveholding states start passing all of these laws that mean that black people end up paying for the education of white students, yes. but that there's no money to educate their own. So they're passing laws that say things like it's illegal to use white taxpayer dollars to educate any black child. Mm -hmm. But black people, black communities still have to pay their taxes to educate white children, but then they have to pay extra money, a double tax, in order to educate black children, right? Like, so the burden of education then falls firmly on poor, sharecropping, barely making it, or even if you were a landowner, a farmer, you didn't have money to be paying a whole extra tax Mm -hmm. to try to educate your kid, but that's what was required. And this was so lucrative. It was so popular. 
you know, like saying things like it is illegal. Well, of course, they just said it's illegal to educate black and white kids in the same space. Like, that's just over. We were doing that before, not doing that anymore. And if black people want their own schoolhouses, if they have to build them, they have to pay for them, they have to donate the land to white county officials in order <laughs> to get it. And then, you know, we'll let them have it. But we've gained land and we've gained, you know, the whole responsibility for education now we figured out how to make it lawful to require black people to pay for it. And this was so popular, like uh, one person in Alabama, you know, wrote a letter in the newspaper and it was talking about how, you know, all white people should just bow down to the, the governor in the state who had put this forward because he had done such a service to whites. But it's on the backs of black people. So that's one of the first kinds of um, moments where you're seeing this segregation um, and economic benefit. And the benefit is going to white families and white students and uh, white county officials. And black people are paying for it, (laughs) paying for all of it. To that point, you expose white philanthropy and its perpetuation of the myth of racial hierarchy. And they do that in their adoption of education as an issue for poor black students. And you just mentioned the ways in which white philanthropy would require black communities to raise their own funding to build their own schools for their children. This is a quote, black people in the rural South were the largest contributors to black education, which is something that, you know, people miss. There's actually a counter narrative to that that's just false, that black people don't care about education, that they haven't actually contributed to education and and live off of the government, so to speak. You know, there's a, a larger quote from the book, and this is from a community meeting in Alabama in 1925, where black sharecroppers had gathered to talk about raising money to try to match a grant from the Rosenwald Fund to build a school in their community. And so I I just want to read this quote for folks to understand the magnitude of what you just shared. It says, the farmers had been hard hit because the boll weevil had wreaked havoc on the cotton plants. They knew it would be a rough economic season for them when it came time to settle up. As the gathering got started, the MC said, we have never had a school in this vicinity. Most of our children have grown into manhood and womanhood without the semblance of an opportunity to get an insight on life. Tears began to trickle down his face. Just then, one old man who had seen slavery days with all of his life's earnings in an old, greasy sack slowly drew it from his pocket and emptied it on the table. He turned to address the crowd and said, I want to see the children of my grandchildren have a chance, and so I am giving my all. What he had to offer was $10, the sum total he had been able to save throughout the totality of his life. His sacrifice spurred further giving by the group, and they finished the night raising over $1,300. And you go on to share, Dr. Rooks, that the full total from that black community in 1925 that was raised for that high school was almost $6,500. And these are sharecroppers who are being Already they're being robbed in their farming. They're being robbed, as you described, in the tax structure for public education. And this was their contribution for their school. 
What was the role of white philanthropy in helping to birth and perpetuate segronomics? This is something that I didn't know. So this is something I came across and, and you know, was kind of like, wow, look, look at these philanthropists really throwing down for black people all of a sudden. And how did I know nothing about this? So the Julius Rosenwald Fund, Julius Rosenwald was a business person. He's the president of Sears. He was from Jewish immigrant parents. Um, worked himself up from a very menial job in the company to being um, president and was just like a lot of folks in the North was spent a lot of time sitting around kind of going, it's just a shame what is happening in the rural South with black people. So this is around the turn of the 20th century. And it is kind of like they don't have any schools and it's terrible and we should do something and blah, blah, blah. And he's, he's best friends with a man named Charles Sachs, who's like Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. Um, So he, they're, they're besties and they're sitting around going, you know, uh, we should do something. So Sachs introduces him to Booker T. Washington, the educator who's at Tuskegee at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I really want to do something. I don't just want to talk about this. Right. I want to, you know, what what can we put together? How can we fix it? And they come up with this idea that, well, why don't we just build some schools in the rural South? Like the issue is black people in rural areas where where at the time most were living in the South, they had not started to move to cities, so they were still in, in pretty rural areas. There weren't opportunities for education, and as I, as I already talked about a little bit, uh, white legislatures were busy figuring out how to make sure that there wasn't going to be any access to education for them. So they come up with this idea, let's do a grant program to allow people in communities to apply and then we'll give them grants to build schools. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't take long for them to recognize or to be told by powerful white people in the South, former slave owners, Mm -hmm. that we do not think the lazy Negroes amongst us. So even though the fact that one of the things is just consistently amazing, like I did know it, but to consistently see it is you have all of these white people who every work need has been taken care of by enslaved people, you know, in the previous eras. And they still have servants left and right, like very modest white people had had servants to do their work. Black servants. But there was this constant black servants. There was Mm -hmm. constantly black servants and workers doing the menial labor of running their homes and their businesses. Even for just middle class folks, that was common. And yet there's this consistent narrative about black laziness. Like people who who built the entire wealth of the country and are doing the work in your own home, right. somehow your cultural narrative is they are lazy. And if we let them, they will just lie around and do nothing. So they come up with, well, on the one hand, these, these white philanthropists and Booker T. Washington, you know, come up with this idea, yes, use your money to build schools. It's wrapped in this ideology of black laziness. So they're kind of like, well, if we just start giving them schools, if we just start building schools for them, or if we just start giving them money to do it, they'll be lazy, not to mention the white people in the South will be upset. They will not like Mm -hmm. that. They will be trying to figure out why are you giving all the money to black people and not to build more schools for white people. So they come up with this grant program. So what they said is, you know, what you have to do first for very poor community is you have to raise at least $500, depending on the size of the school. 
It could be much more that you had to raise, but the minimum amount any community had to build for the most modest school, you had to raise $500 from your folks. Then once you raised that $500, they didn't give you the grant money then. You then had to identify some land on which this school was going to be built that would be deeded to the county, to mm-hmm. county officials, county, state, or local officials, some government entity. You had to identify land and give it to them in perpetuity for you to then build a school. You still didn't get your school after that. Then you had to identify and make available the materials that we're going to, if you want to go chop down some trees on somebody's land to build this thing, um, if you want to figure out how to trade work for lumber, you had to figure out how you were going to pay for the materials. And then you had to find the labor to do it. Mm. Right? You still haven't gotten any money from anybody else. This yeah. is still all poor sharecropping black people. You had to find the land to do it. Then you had to get it built. And at that point, you could say, I have a school, but you still had to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> so so when when people have, I mean, in, in like four, almost 5,000 schools, Rosenwald schools were built um, across the South. I'm not hating on Rosenwald. Mm-hmm. Almost a third of black people in the country got educated in one of these schools because they were the only, you know, option. But the thing that has come up around it is often there's this praising of Rosenwald, like, oh, how selfless he was. And it's, you know, that he helped black people. And he, but when you crunch the numbers, those poor black communities paid for two-thirds of the amount between their tax dollars, Mm -hmm. the donations, the money that they raised, two-thirds of the amount for educating their kids came from those communities, not Rosenwald and not white county officials, not tax dollars. Those folks had to come up with it, and it's still in the face of them being called lazy. And as we even learn the lesson today or hear about Rosenwald schools, it's all this thing about Look what this philanthropist did. And it's not that different, I don't think, from some things that we see today. Yeah. Right. But that's where it begins. For me, that's where it begins. The narrative about the Rosenwald schools and the philanthropy and, you know, what an incredible giver he was. And again, not to take away from his contribution, but to recognize the work that black communities put into giving their all as that sharecropper did and the the story that you told to really try to bring to fruition their vision of successful education for their children, their grandchildren, Mm -hmm. their great grands, knowing that that was the way to freedom, knowing that the quality education for their children was the way to freedom. They gave everything. And you tell a story also of a a woman who had to do bake sales. She had to raise money four, yeah. was it four or five times. She had to start over and over again because mm-hmm. something would come up to thwart her efforts and she would start over and she did that and persisted for almost 10 years. To get one school built. And again, it's as much, much about, I mean, some of what I discovered is, you know, how, how pernicious, how, how degrading, like we know white supremacy is a problem and we know that stereotypes are a problem. But again, when you see a woman in her community spend nine plus years figuring out how to get one school built and organizing the entire community 
over and in over order to again. do it multiple times mm-hmm. because the first time they raised the money, you know, to get things done. And then the treasurer, you know, like black people are human like everybody else. So we have like, you know, some we have thieves amongst us. You know, the treasurer just took all the money that these people had spent a few years raising and ran off with it to California. Right. right. And then the second time they get as far as getting the materials and getting the land and getting the materials straight. And then the black men in the community could not quite get themselves together to build the school. So all of the materials end up rotting on the ground. And then the third time is a charm. You know, they get it together, Mm -hmm. get the land, get the thing built. And that's told as a story of, yay, where would we be without Julius Rosenwald and the Rosenwald Fund? But when you read it, it's hard not to think, where would we be without that one woman who was committed to black children, to her community, and had the patience of Job? Yes. Like, where would those communities be without those figures? And we so rarely talk about them. We talk about how great it is that rich white people came along. And I think it's an important note for philanthropy today and a a question that I think should inform the work of philanthropy, which is where does your philanthropy come from? And if it's coming from a place of belief in black people as lazy or communities, the communities that you're, you're supporting as lazy or incapable or whatever it might be, and then making them jump through these hoops in order to get resources and uh, essentially putting them to work for themselves, even as they continue to work for themselves and everyone else, that is problematic. And that is not collaboration. That is not partnership. One of the things that connects that period with this is the ways that philanthropists assume that there were no people and continue to assume that there are no black people working on these issues Mm -hmm. in those communities, that there's no expertise already there, that there's not generations of knowledge, context, and knowing what works, what doesn't, what, you know, like they, they then... Like, no one went into these communities and said, what kind of school would would you want? Right. How would it best work for you? And so the other thing um, about this these ideologies of white supremacy were that all of these schools that got built, all the schools, um, no matter who was building them, basically, said that black people had to engage in vocational yes. education. I'm not mad at that. Like, you know, people learning how to be nurses and make bricks and do home economics. I am not the least bit mad at that. The thing is, there was no option whatsoever for any other kind of education. So you didn't have the choice of if you did want to sit around and contemplate Plato and perhaps go on and, you know, be a concert violinist or whatever, like you wanted a different kind of life for yourself. That was just not even a topic of conversation as far as White people were concerned who were funding this. It all had to be vocational. And they said, and the the thing is amazing, is they're busy writing letters to each other. So it's not like you have to intuit. (laughs) You don't have to guess. They're like, well, black people need to be taught their place, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so these same folks who are coming with the schoolhouse in one hand Mm -hmm. have this whole ideology and narrative on the other that they have to be taught to value hard work. They have to be taught their place in the social order, like that they're not equal with white people. And the ways that we can ensure that the South stays with this hierarchy, again, they're writing, so not me intuiting, the way that we can keep this hierarchy of white supremacy, of white people on top, white men on top, 
um, is through a kind of education that makes clear to the Negro that there's a social order and this education prepares them for the place that we want them to be in, which is at the bottom. We'll have white men doing, you know, the more cerebral, being middle managers, and we want to prepare black people to be laborers and to provide service. So that's the thing, right? It's not that I think there's something wrong. I often, you know, people will often say, you not everybody, you know, I, when I'm doing talks, right, people will be like, what is wrong? Well, like, you sound like you're looking down on vocational education. It's not that. Yeah. It's the ways that they connected vocational education to black inferiority and that that was the only education you could get. Yes. And that's one of the things I also think connects with a more contemporary period is that it's an idiosyncratic form of education that's prescribed only for black people. <laughs> this is not how we're going to educate any white people. It's sort of similar to some things that you see today, not to just jump fully ahead, but it's the way the past is connected with the present, you know, and what you have to understand if you're going to imagine a different future is these idiosyncratic ways that we educate poor kids and black kids and Latinx kids in urban areas with cyber education. Uh, not hating on charter schools, but thinking about how there's a kind of idiosyncratic form of education, an unequal kind of education that we are comfortable with for black kids. Charter schools or cyber schools, cyber education, which are charter schools, but that only exist online. So you have children as young as five years old who are doing their kindergarten. I mean, I don't know who, if, how much time people spend around five-year-olds, but imagining a five-year-old spending their day sitting in front of the computer by themselves um, as their form of kindergarten. Yes. Just the sitting, right? Like just. Yes. <laughs> and and know, not, not being socialized, not, not nothing, just them and a computer for kindergarten. None of the let's do blocks. It's cyber education. You sit in front of the computer and the cute little cartoons teach you how to count or whatever. Right. Those forms of education are on the rise in poor black and Latinx communities and in rural white communities Mm -hmm. on the rise because they're cheap. So in some places, these are accounting for up to a third knocking on the door of a half Mm -hmm. of how black and brown and poor kids are being educated depending on the exact place and you never yeah. ever yeah. find this in wealthy white communities right. ever to me one of the threads is really how there's consistently types of education ways of paying for education and ideas about what you want for black brown and poor kids that are embedded in education that are just consistently separate and unequal and are making millions, millions. for people who come up with this crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I really love about your explanations in this book is that it really gets under what I think has been very instinctual for Black communities who feel like, ooh, there's something wrong with Teach for America but they they seem well-intentioned, right? Or there's something right, wrong right. with KIPP, but it seems well-intentioned. And right. there's something wrong with this push for vocational instruction only in our neighborhoods, but it seems well-intentioned, right? And you really talk about that, to make that connection again to the contemporary, the compromise of white philanthropy saying education needs to happen in Black communities, and Southern white 
you know, former slave masters saying, well, we have economic interests that need serving. We need laborers to fill those roles of furthering the economic interests that are at play here. And that compromise then between the two being vocational instruction, which then becomes this bribe for black communities to say, look, we're doing good for you. What are you complaining about? And that's what we see today with Teach for America and KIPP and other other programs that you call out very explicitly in your book. Well, you know, Teach for America was founded at Princeton before I was there. It was founded at Princeton where I used to teach in the 80s. Mm-hmm. By the time I was there, 15 years later, when Wendy Kopp would come to campus, she was a complete rock star. In my context, it was sort of like when Angela Davis, I went to HBCUs, so I went to Spelman College, and when Angela Davis would come to campus, or I would even see her at conferences, where, like, she'd have like people just walking behind <laughs> her. First of all, crowds would part as she walked by, uh. and then there was always just these folks sort of following behind her. Right. I mean, I imagine it'd be like if Beyonce came to campus or something. <laughs> This is how it was with Wendy Cop. Like people would be trembling and looking at her big eyed wow. as she would walk around. Mm-hmm. And as you unravel the story of Teach for America, because it was really this story with her of and with Teach for America of this is almost like Mississippi Freedom Summer, which is 1964. You had a bunch of white folks and northern black folks who left colleges to spend the summer in Mississippi to start freedom schools, to start doing voter education. I mean, it was a mass movement that was multiracial, that had black educational freedom at its center. It has some problems with it, too. However, it moved the needle. And the ways that people would talk about Teach for America very often was the same thing. Like, we've got wealthy white kids, because when it started, they were, like, they got, they're better with this now, but uh, when it started, it was almost predominantly white kids from Ivy League institutions, most of whom knew Zippo about the communities they were being asked to go teach in. And you had a five-week training program, which you still have, and then, you know, you're turned loose on these to fix these kids and, and fix education. But people didn't know, and I didn't know, at least initially, the business, like the ways that this model was enriching a corporate entity. And they didn't know that Wendy Cott started off as the president, like at the same time that she's coming up with this idea for transforming education for kids who she'd never in community, she never been. She, I mean, you know, she grew up wealthy, upper middle class in Texas. She admits, you know, segregation being what it is in Texas and elsewhere. She didn't know any black kids. <laughs> she didn't know she didn't know any Latinx kids. And she living in Texas, for God's sakes. But, you know, and she was a debutante. And, you know, my grandmother was a debutante. Again, not hating on that. But it's a whole a litany of things that let you know that she doesn't know anything about these people she's decided to save. And then she comes to Princeton, and she's the head of the Young Business League. And this is at a time when the Fortune 500, like business Wall Street hedge funders and corporations, have just started to figure out, because of Reagan, that there is profit to be made in privatizing public education. So they're busy, like, writing letters to each other, forming commissions. Their business journals are talking about how we can get money from this, right? Like, so it's not like Wendy Cobb is just sitting at Princeton and goes, hey, I just came up with this idea. It's very much in the business air that this is a moment where we can start to privatize, and she's the head 
of the young business leaders of America at Princeton, right? So when she comes up with this thing, and the part that I was surprised I didn't know more about was the ways that it was about privatizing education and extracting money from struggling communities. So Teach for America, for example, for every teacher that they place, and they're placing these teachers in urban areas that with failing school systems that are underfunded, that are constantly in debt or in, or at the time, they don't do so much in rural areas anymore, but at the time they were still big into like, let's go to Appalachia and place some teachers with white Appalachians. But they were charging these struggling school districts between $2,000 and $5,000, which they still do, to place a teacher, right? Like, so you're in a struggling area. <laughs> like, you are a philanthropic organization. In 2016, the last time I looked, they had almost $400 million in their bank account. Incredible. Like, the after, like, the net, not the gross of what they had was, was almost $400 million. And they're still extracting money from these struggling school districts to enrich their bottom line and making very few promises um, that anyone can hold them to as to what their value add is. But it's a, it's a crisis. There's very little evidence of the value add for the children in those schools, but much, much about the value add for the teachers themselves and for their professional trajectory. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, Betichich, is that how you say his name? Let me uh, look something in Betage- his name. B- Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg. From South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is a tfa And so if he were to be, I mean, in, in, out of college, he's a tfa And he's still, people still trying to work with him about his thinking about privatization of education. But he is an example of what TFA offered middle class, upper middle class, highly educated white people. They were like, this will be a gateway for you. And and again, they wrote this not inferring. This was their pitch. It's explicit. Yeah, they're explicit about it. They're going to Yale. They're coming to Princeton. They're at Harvard going, forget about going to Wall Street or going to one of these management organizations. Mm -hmm. You can go into education for two years, come and teach for two years. And then after that, we hope you might stay around or, you know, this will open doors for you in all kinds of other ways in the same way that the Peace Corps used to. So you could go run off in the Peace Corps, go to underdeveloped, you know, region of the world, spend two years. And when you came back, if you wanted to go to law school, people would say, oh, my God, Mm -hmm. it's somebody who went to the Peace Corps. It would elevate your dreams for yourself after. It also makes you a part of a very wealthy, very well-connected network. Mm -hmm. And that's what they would say. Like, you can get where you want to get down the road, but you can start here with this two years. And there's this this whole kind of combining social justice with making money kind of thing that starts to rise at this same time. So it's like, well, so it's making a difference while you make a dollar is one of the kind of models that people in the 80s were talking about. So Pete Buttigieg, should he become president, is really the dream of TFA fulfilled. But yeah. when you talk to black communities in the town where he is mayor, mm-hmm. they're all like, "We he don't know nothing about our, from what I've seen. Right. <laughs> so they're kind of like, he is not president. Uh-huh. We don't know anything about him. He never speaks out about anything. Like So he can get to the top of this particular heap and doesn't even have to act like right. he knows anything about the communities 
that he's supposed to be serving. That is a complete TFA model, complete. So yeah, so TFA, there was a whole money-making part of it that I didn't know anything about, as well as the charter schools. Just the model, the model takes money out of struggling school districts. And again, with all of the philanthropic support that they have, it's not like they couldn't just open up private schools, right? Like Bill Gates could just open up private schools in communities. If he had this big concern about what is happening with poor kids, well, here, why don't I just fund a chain of private schools that kids can go to, which is not then sucking money out of the public school system. It's not doing that. And then you have black parents who since post-Reconstruction have been like, I don't care what you say it is. If you are going to educate my baby, I'm there. I don't care what other people are saying. You know, well, who cares if it's vocational education? My kid is going to be sitting in a classroom. I'm going to give my last dollar for them to sit in that classroom. And so with charter schools, people always say, you know, black families love charter schools. Of course. You're telling them that you're going to educate their kids. It's just you're not necessarily always doing that and you don't own up to it. Yes. Yes. See, now you have me like screeching a little bit. (laughs) Like, now you got me upset. <laughs> well, I will tell you, I, I there were moments where I literally just screeched, no words or anything, reading your book. It's infuriating, and but it's also, it's uplifting. And, and, you know, one connection, an important connection that you make between that historical context and today is this culture of resistance, and which also kind of annihilates the myth of, of laziness in Black communities. But you have a whole chapter dedicated to the resistance that black communities are leading today. And in that chapter, you talk about the work of several of our partners at the Communities for Just Schools Fund. You talk about grassroots organizing groups like Journey for Justice and Urban Youth Collaborative and Philadelphia Student Union, Youth United for Change and Coleman Advocates. Can you talk a little bit, Dr. Brooks, about how their work is related to your study of segronomics? the idea of segronomics, it's an extraction of wealth from communities that do not have the power to either see or understand or to push back. Mm-hmm. It's based on an acceptance. And like, we, you know, in talking about how people just get excited, you want to come in and build. If you're Rosenwald or if you're Kip, people are like, you want to build a school for our babies? Sure. Yeah. And it's based on, segronomics really based on you not going beyond that, just that. What I found, and again, this is yet something else that I didn't know till I went looking for it, mm-hmm. is all over the country, and it has been true for decades, young people who are supposed to be the passive receptors, yes. you know, of all of this segronomic activity or, or, you know, just you're just supposed to be happy. Young people have been rising up regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, in different ways. And generally, it starts with them being able to name and talk about how these educational practices impact them. And really, I mean, the thing that was um, heartening to me is is so many were saying, well, you know, I may not get better because I'm all the way in high school now, but I'll be damned if I'm going to let you have my little brother. That's right. Or, you know, I will stand up. I will fight you. I will protest. I will lobby. I will go talk to the mayor. I will make media interventions. We will organize and join together yes. for something better. 
And the thing that, 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 again, that I always tell people is, I didn't know what was happening. Like, and these young people are winning. Not winning like we're overturning everything and it's a new day and everything is great, but they are pushing back these forces that seek to undereducate them and to treat them as less than human and to prepare them for a social order where it's just jail or low wage work. Little by little, depending on where you are, you know, in the country, depending on the organization, they are winning ground. They're pushing back um, and they're gaining ground. And one of the things I'm always telling folks who are like wringing their hands, like, well, what, what should we do? join these folks. They know what to do. They need help. They, they need visibility. The yes. They need support. Yes. Let them be your general. Just ask them <laughs> what do they need from you. And there's very few communities where you're not going to find this kind of organized resistance. So, That's right. But the way that the media has managed to just not even mention that students call themselves unionizing over these issues of education all over the country where it's most needed and it's kids that are young people who really don't have the entree and the access. They have to fight their way to the mayor's office. They have to fight their way. Nobody's picking up a phone and saying, let me smooth the path. Here, come talk to the governor. You know, that is not happening. They are fighting for every face-to-face meeting and they're doing it. And they're winning. Yes. It's not a revolution. It's not the kind of winning where you're kind of like, and now it's an... And now we're done. (laughs) It's not that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I loved how in the book you kind of came to this end, right, where you reached this climax with all of the history and all of the current work that's happening to maintain racial and economic segregation in order to line the pockets of corporations and other, you know, so-called nonprofit organizations, other organizations that are white-led and wealthy and completely disconnected from community. And then you dive deep into community and, and really show the ways that young people especially are leading us into the freedom that that, that, that sharecropper who gave his last $10 was imagining. And it's just so powerful to do. And I'm, I'm so appreciative. And they are winning. They are winning at the policy level, you know, in the schools. They are winning legislation. They are winning um, by themselves running for office. These young people are powerful and they are doing it. And they are in communities and they're, they're ready. Yeah. You know, if you want to take a look, just, just open your eyes and see them because they're there and they're, mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. ready. I just want to close, Dr. Rooks. I, so appreciated your voice throughout this book. And I'm just curious, and you you do share a bit of your story in, in the desegregation, the larger desegregation story, but what is your story? How did you come to this book or how did this book come to you? So I'm in Africana studies or African American studies. I'm in black studies. And what that means to me is a history and a legacy of being a scholar activist of using the scholarly world and resources to lift up, shine a light on things that the world needs to know mm-hmm. that we don't know because we're, we're undertaught. Like, here's the thing about the book, you know, like, you know, black people undertaught. <laughs> and a lot of the black um, institutions that made it their business to make sure that black people knew yeah. that we were not who they said we were. Mm-hmm. The black teachers, black black schools. I talk about black independent schools in the books. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the more successful 
models who really runs through all of them, despite maybe differences of emphasis or ideology, all of it is, I will make sure that you know you are somebody, like to sound corny, but you are somebody and you come from people who have done things. You come from a community and that means something. And there's so few places, I think, today where you can take that for granted, where you know if you are in a neighborhood, everybody in that neighborhood is going to try to see after you. So one of the things that I've always felt about my work in higher education is it needs to be understandable or some aspect of my work be understandable and useful for people who are not and readable and be of use. If that book can be of use to people who are fighting, you know, then I feel like I've done what I wanted to do. And so some part of like just just for that being the work, that's where that comes from, my understanding of what Black Studies is and what it should be. But that topic really did just have to do with the story I start the book with, a young white woman who comes to my office and is all like, why do you think, why do you keep telling people that you have to like go ask people's grandparents or caretakers or aunties, you know, if we want to do something in education in their communities? Like, why do you think black people care about education? Like, I've heard that so many times that black people don't care about education. If education is failing, it's a failure of black families. And these individual, like kind of if you get individuals who, you know, bootstrap themselves, that should be enough. Let's don't look at the system. Mm -hmm. And between hearing the very privileged white people tell me about black communities that I just did not recognize. I grew up in black communities. I didn't grow up in, in integrated communities. You know, and I didn't recognize who they were talking about or what they were talking about. In, a, in that way, there was just a record in need of correcting. Yeah. But the book ended up being exactly what it is because as I uncovered things that I didn't know, I didn't go into the book knowing everything yeah. that I ended up writing about. In the research, trying to ask the questions that I had about why are these philanthropists talking about me and mine in ways I don't recognize, which is the basic research question around this topic. Yeah, I kept stumbling into things. I'm like, I don't know this. And I bet that means nobody else does either. Yeah. And so then putting together the narrative, I mean, people tell me, well, you know, I knew the history of the Rosenwald schools. I had no idea what Nixon was doing when he got elected. Uh-huh. Or I knew what was going on in the South. I didn't know the story of the North. And the big takeaway for me has been that The big impediment to change in education where it comes to segregation Mm -hmm. is white parents. There's no period of time where white parents have said, or there are few, there are very few examples of white parents saying, okay, the law has changed now. We are supposed to integrate or we're supposed to share resources or we're supposed to, you know, stop harassing black people, whatever. (laughs) Like they never follow the law. Yeah. They really just kind of go, yeah, that's completely fine. But my kid is going over here. So it's the the question that I have now that I'm thinking about is, is it at all possible to achieve this lofty dream of shared resources in the face of white parental resistance, the organized face of white parental resistance, which we never really talk about? 
And the other question I have is, is I was running around talking about this book, you know, and saying that, well, separate but equal didn't work. So, you know, we got to try integration, basically, Um, you know, and we got to actually make a sincere effort at it. Mm -hmm. But I keep getting pushback from black and, and Latinx communities about that hard, like about this idea that integration will save us. And so I'm really grappling with since we've never actually had separate but equal, the equal part. Never had the equal part. That's right. Um, that was most of three of the five Brown v. Board cases. Yes. We're not even asking for integration. That's they were right. just asking for equal. Equal resources. Like, you know, That's all. They were like, yeah, we just we just actually don't want to go school in a school bus that's broken down. Right. You know, we or just a want a building, building that approximates. Yeah. Like, we, you know, like we don't want to have sewage in our hallways. We would just like you to build us a school. It can be segregated. We would just like one that looks that? as good as what the white people have. How like, about right? That? <laughs> yeah, so I am literally struggling with right now. Those are the two things that I'm still left thinking about mm-hmm. having gone through this history is since we've never actually had separate but equal, is it time for us to try that? Because we don't have integration now in most places. That's right. Like we do some places, it was seamless, it was easy, it's been fine. Right. But in way too many places, we don't have integration. Yeah. And we're more segregated now than we were. Right. We're more segregated. And in the face of this white parental, consistent white parental resistance, is there a path to it? And so do we then start like there's, as I said, I keep giving talks and a lot of the talks that I give and people I talk with are little small groups. It'd be small groups of people in somebody's kitchen. Like most of my talks are not like, look at you on the news tonight. Like most of mine are you know, like in churches and stuff like, (laughs) and I consistently am talking to people who are like, why would you think that's in our children's best interest? Mm. And so I'm left with, well, in the, you know, is is MLK said, so where do we go from here? Do we act like white parents all of a sudden are going to get some act right? (laughs) Um, And so we keep pushing for integration. There's nothing in history that would lead us to believe that's going to happen. Then do we then start advocating for separate but equal in the knowledge that we've never seen the equal? We've never, those same white parents make sure that the equal is not forthcoming. It cannot happen in this country the way that we, the way that this nation has been born, the way that the nation operates, it cannot, separate but equal cannot happen. It can't happen. What are you left with? Right? You got a a public school system, if it's charter schools that got no excuses and, you know, kicking people out and, you know, all the things that we know are wrong with. Only like 20% of charter schools do better than traditional public schools. And we talk about that 20% as if, you know, it's 80 or 100%. It's not. About 20%. Mm Mm-hmm. So what are you left with? You know, that's a hard question. That's a hard problem. I got zero answers on it. Mm-hmm. But that is what is consuming my thinking right now. And looking for other people who are trying to figure out, like, again, we got these young people fighting tooth and nail in traditional public schools because charter schools don't play that. So that you mm-hmm. would not have activist students in charter schools that I'm aware of pushing back against authority and stuff and staying there. So you got young folks who are fighting to make these traditional school systems habitable. But I don't know that that's enough of a movement to fix everything that's broken. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I believe that, again, this integration thing, I don't know what it looks like for it to work. Like, I need more models. But I know separate but equal doesn't work, right? So where do we go from here? Yes. So I think that that's really the, the question that we need some folks 
some young folks, some older folks, some politicians, some philanthropists to get together and take seriously. What, what do we do now? I will say that, you know, I know that the groups that you talk about in your book, have they've got the answers and they're, they are just doing that work. They've got their heads down. They are plowing forward and they are doing that work to build the schools that are going to be successful for black and brown communities. That's, you know, they really are our leaders and they, they are the ones who have, who have many of the answers that we're looking for. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Dr. Rooks, yeah, I always follow the kids. I'm always, the, I'm always, I'm happy. Like lead me, lead me children. Yeah. I'm happy to be whatever, whatever help Just and tell me what I to do. Be, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. I thank you uh, for this masterwork. This book is so informative. It's so important. And sadly, this is the end of our episode of Schoolhouse Equity and Education with Dr. Noliwe Rooks. Dr. Rooks is a professor at Cornell University, where she is the director of American Studies. Dr. Rooks, if folks want to reach you through social media, are you active and how can they find you? So I'm on Facebook and I'm at Twitter at nrookie at in rookie N-R-O-O-K-I-E. I'm on Instagram, too. Thank you so much. Dr. Brooks is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with me, Dr. Brooks. Thank you. This was great. I want to thank the show's contributors, Alexis J. Smith and Abdul Rufus. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember to follow the Communities for Just Schools Fund on Twitter at Just Schools and find us on Instagram and Facebook. Sign up for the CJSF newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful week.